Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible with you, you can uh, turn to Matthew's Gospel, the very last chapter. We're looking at the last three verses of the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, maybe you were expecting Mark this morning, but uh, the people who are planning and um, organizing our Renew groups, our small groups, if you're not familiar at EP, our small group ministry is called Renew. Uh, they are uh, recruiting new people who have not been in uh, Renew groups and getting them into Renew groups, so they needed an extra week uh, to be ready for that. And so if you have not picked up your material for your Renew group, you can do that out in the uh, foyer on your way out for Mark, and we'll begin that next week. And so the question was, what do you do uh, with this extra week? And uh, rather than just sending you home early... I would think about this. We, are at the beginning of every year, many, many people in our culture want to turn over a new leaf. We call them New Year's resolutions. In fact, I, I think athletic uh, clubs are built on people uh, feeling guilty from eating all Thanksgiving and Christmas and sign up and they bank on you being there for about 30 days and then you quitting and still paying uh, for months afterward. But all built on this idea that I did something that I didn't like, the, the, the fruit of what I did, I, I, I just want to change. And so this year I'm going to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to do things differently. Have you thought much about that in relationship to the church. Now, I don't mean simply you haven't gone much and now you're going to start going. I mean, what is church all about? What is the church for? William Temple, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said this about the church. He said, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. I'll say it again. Think about what he's saying here. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. That's very different than the way in which many approach church. Many approach church like they do any other club or organization or anything that they're part of that they pay dues or give tithes, is that what are the benefits? How does it benefit me? How does it help me? How does it help my family? How does it minister to me? And we're seeing a, a cultural trend in the church that some people will go to one church for their small groups, another church for their Sunday school, and another church for worship. Because it's a lot like the way we treat grocery stores. They have the best meat, but they have the best uh, vegetables, and they have uh, the, the, the best uh, uh, products that uh, are organic. And, and so we treat the church somewhat like that as a smorgasbord of shopping. But God established the church for the world. We know that because he says after his resurrection to the people that are still with him, I'm leaving you, but let me leave you this commission. He says it five times. It's recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. 
the same idea. We're just looking at one of those. The one in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God help us understand this is most precious word. What is God doing in the world? That's really the question as we look at our world with all that's going on in our world. Don't we want to know what he's doing? What's behind it all? Uh, Colossians, Paul tells us. We don't have to wonder. In Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he's still doing that. He's still looking at people who in one way or another, this is what he means by darkness. You might be thinking if you uh, are not around the church very often, it's, a, it's an odd language to describe our situation as dark when it's fully bright outside. He, he's not talking about light and dark by whether the sun is present. He's talking about light and dark with regards to knowing our sin. That we are far from God. That our sin has made a separation from our creator. That he originally gave us everything that we would ever need. Primarily himself. And we said he was not enough. That what he had given us was not good enough. And so we went our own way. Which in a way put us into bondage to serve our own self-interest and our, our self-glory. And that's one way to talk about this darkness, this domain of darkness that is capped by death itself. No one gets out of what? Life alive. As we were down in Florida this week and, and we were talking about some of the people that we have uh, uh, deeply loved in our church this year that have passed away and and thinking what would it be like if we didn't believe in eternity if we didn't believe there was a god but people still died and they do and as more and more of our country believes less and less in eternity more and more people are facing death with nothing on the other side with no hope. And so what God is doing in the world is saving people from that. Transferring them from that domain where there is no hope and no answer for death into the kingdom of a son where he has redeemed. And that word redemption means to buy back, to purchase that which is in bondage. And this story that it reminds me of, if maybe you haven't read it in a long time, is go read Hosea. Just the first three chapters. Hosea is about a prophet, this single guy who was to speak on behalf of God, and God comes to him and says, I've got a, I've got a job for you. I want you to get married. 
Okay, great. I've been single a long time. I'd like to get married. Who you got for me? Her name is Hosea. I mean, a Gomer. Oh, I know Gomer. She's the town prostitute. Don't you think that's an inappropriate matching? The town crier of the gospel with the town's greatest sinner? No, I need you to marry her because this is the way the relationship between me and my people are. Because they are like the prostitute who is always going after something else because I'm never enough. And you're going to marry her, you're going to have children, and we're, you're not even going to know if they're your children. He has one and, and names are uh, not mine. Has another child and, and says, I don't love you, is your name. That doesn't go well on the playground. Or, or the child uh, is uh, uh, um, not my people. Can you imagine? And then God says, you know, she's eventually going to leave you for some of the man. She's going to return to her own profession. And she does. And she goes from one, living with one guy after another until eventually uh, she can make no more money. And so she's being sold in the town square, and Hosea has been told to go and to buy her. And when he buys her, rather than saying, now you're my slave, he returns her to her role as the wife and puts, she's being sold naked, so he puts his coat around her. And you see, that's the picture of being transferred from the the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, where there's redemption and forgiveness. This whole year, the officers and staff have been studying a book together called The Vine Project. About 10 years ago, we read a book uh, called The Trellis on the Vine by the same uh, Colin Marshall and uh, Tony Payne. And the, and the book talks about how the church has uh, trellises, the way in which we do things, practices that support the vine, how we want people to grow in the gospel. And, and so the vine project was, how do you take a church like ours and make disciple-making at the core of who we are and what we do? Not everything we do, just disciple-making. And, and so it, when explaining this idea of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, this illustration is the one that they use out of Colossians 1, that the domain of darkness, even after we become a Christian, we're still affected by that. We, that is, as soon as we become a Christian, we don't become perfect. Yes, before God, judicially we are. You'll never be more accepted than you are right now, but still we have sin uh, the effects of the way in which we lived under the kingdom of darkness that still affect us today until eventually he comes back for us and then that's removed. Well, how's God going to do that? How, is, how has God decided to move people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of a son? He's decided to do that through disciple-making by his people making disciples. So I'm just going to series of questions and answer these questions as we work through this over the last year. I'll just share you some of the things that we learned. Verse 18 of Matthew 28 says, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. The command, go and make disciples, the therefore means 
based on all authority has been given unto me in heaven on earth. Jesus is saying, guys, I have the authority. The word there is exousia, which is the word for authority or the right. Because I am Lord, I am the creator, I am God, I have the right to tell my creatures, and I know our backs begin to bow as soon as someone says, I have authority over you. That's one of the characteristics of being an American is we don't like anyone telling us what to do. Particularly when we don't have any way uh, to mitigate what he's telling us to do. Because he doesn't say when it feels right. He says, go and make disciples. Because I have the authority. I'm the one that moved you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son through redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now you go and tell people that. Jesus has the authority because he's not just our Savior, he's our Lord. So why do we make disciples? Because Jesus commanded us to. But we still fail at it. So so what? We now have added a, a 713th command we don't keep. If there's 712 commands in the Bible, here's the 13th. Just another one we don't keep. Well, that's because it was never meant to be a motivation. It was never meant to be the motivation for making disciples. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, the reason to make disciples. He says in verse 13, for the love of Christ controls me. I love the New American Standard. It says the love of Christ compels me. Because, he goes on, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. There's two parts of that motivation. One is that we have died to ourselves. Our wants, our goals, our uh, New Year's resolutions, our understanding, our finances, our relationships, we've died to those things so that because he died for us. And it is because he demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us, we are compelled to tell others what he has done for us. It is because he redeemed us that we seek that more people hear the gospel and are rescued themselves. It is because we are renewed by the gospel that we seek the renewal of Annapolis. We don't seek the renewal of Annapolis because we are commanded, because that won't get it done. Because we will mitigate the command. If we want people involved in the Great Commission, we don't remind them of the command, we remind them of what Christ has done. He's removed us, he's moved us from the domain of darkness in to the kingdom of the Son through redemption and the forgiveness of sins. It is because we have been forgiven that we want those in bondage to guilt and shame to be freed. It is those who get out of prison who now turn around and open the doors to everyone else still in prison. We cannot ignore where we came from. 
the chains have fell off. We truly are free, but not everyone is. 2 Corinthians 5 goes on in verse 18 and says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God's love, this is the way that we phrased it, God's love by the power of the Spirit compels us to make more and more committed followers of Christ from both inside and outside the church because God's redemptive goal is to glorify His beloved Son through the people He has rescued and transformed. We are encouraging us to be involved in the Great Commission Not simply because he commands us, which he did, and he is Lord, but he is also our Savior who loves us and has already rescued us. How can we not go back into the fire and pull out the people who are burning as well? Well, verse 19 tells us to make disciples. But what is a disciple? The word literally means a learner. A disciple is a follower of someone else. The way that Paul puts it in Ephesians is this. And he gave the, some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. But what does that mean Practically. I understand theoretically it means that we become more and more like Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying that God uh, uh, calls certain people in the church to train and mobilize the masses in the church to enter into the Great Commission. But what does maturity truly look like? A disciple of Jesus Christ is saved by faith growing in a relationship with Christ and using their spiritual gifts to build the church as they participate in the Great Commission. All of those are parts of maturity. That is, there is a genuine professed faith in Christ, a growing relationship with him, using their gifts. Not everybody has all the gifts. Everybody has one or two, and we use them together for the building up of a body as we participate in the Great Commission. The question is, can you be a true disciple of Christ and not be in the Great Commission? It seems you can't. Or at least you can't be a mature one. Well, then how are they made? How are disciples made? Verse 19 goes on. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I, uh, to, to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptizing is the way that the Bible talks about entrance into the visible church. In fact, you were baptized after, because nobody grew up in the church in the first century when, when uh, uh, Jesus is giving this command and shortly thereafter, uh, everybody who came into the church were primarily people who for the very first ter- time heard the gospel and they responded in faith and they repented and they were what? 
baptized. And so baptism is that sign of inclusion into the visible church. Do we know whether their hearts had been truly changed? No. We're not talking about the invisible church. We're talking about the visible church, what we see here. And the way in which people were, came into the church after the gospel was shared with them. And we see that in Acts 2 and in Acts uh, 4 where Peter preaches. And, and in one case, 3,000 people uh, come to Christ and they are baptized. And then uh, uh, 5,000 people uh, come to Christ after hearing the gospel and are baptized. And that, that methodology continued on to the point where when churches were finally built in the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries, there are no physical buildings till then. They met in houses, but when they're finally built, where did they put the baptismal font? Outside the church, not inside the church. Because when you were baptized, you were baptized into the church. And so that was done outside symbolically to come in. Now, I know we've moved it all inside and, and it's kind of a wash. But in the early church, that's what they did because they wanted to show that it, baptism is after you hear the gospel, you respond in faith, you're baptized into the visible church. And the other one is teaching. Well, who do you teach? You teach people who've made that profession. They're inside the church. They're part of the community. And you teach them all that Jesus taught. Both are discipleship. We tend to want to pull those apart and say one is evangelism and one is discipleship. No, they're both the same. They're both part of this whole idea of discipling somebody. Somebody uh, hears the gospel long before, in some cases, before they ever respond, before the Spirit gives them a new heart. The way that uh, uh, Tony Payne and, and Colin Marshall talk about this is, and rather than talking about it in uh, baptizing and uh, teaching, they separate it in four different E's. Engage, evangelism, establish, and equip. And the cross, that is when someone moves from the domain of darkness into uh, the kingdom of the sun, uh, they separate that some people are very far from Christ. In fact, they probably have never had a friend, a Christian friend until you came along. They're that far away. And what do they need is they need a Christian friend to engage them, to be their friend, to serve them, to come alongside them, to share about uh, what, what Christ has done in your life, share your testimony, and then evangelize, share the gospel when they're ready. And then after someone becomes a believer, we establish them in the faith. And then we equip them to what? Join with us in the Great Commission. Well, how do we do that? Well, they gave us these four Ps that I think are very helpful for us. One is simply the proclamation of the word. And obviously, Tony and, and Colin, and we don't mean that you bring them to church and let the preachers preach to them. It's simply that everybody has access to the scriptures. It's one of the beautiful things since the Reformation is that everybody uh, can, can get into the scriptures themselves and know them well enough to explain what Jesus has done, that he's transferred people from the domain of darkness into the uh, kingdom of the Son through redemption. That is, he bought them back through his own life on a cross in order that we might be forgiven our sins. That simple gospel message is a proclamation. It's not an argument. It's not apologetic, it's just simply an announcement. Prayerful dependence on the Spirit is the second. 
you know that works. Sometimes you'll be sharing with someone and they'll come to faith and the other person, you'll share the same gospel and they won't. What's the difference? The work of the Spirit. You don't argue people into the kingdom. People don't trip into the kingdom. They're drawn. No one comes to the Father, John 14, 6, but through me. So we depend upon the Spirit. But people, we're invited in to participate as God's fellow workers. And you might be thinking, no way can God use me. You know, I was talking to someone a little bit earlier that if David is here, maybe those of you who know about playing the chopsticks, when you first learn how to play chopsticks on the piano, you're just the person playing the, 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 the beat, the two notes over and over again. And then your teacher's over here playing all the cool music. Well, that's the way we are. God's not asking us to play the, the left hand. He's only asking us to play the beat. He's only asking us to play our role while he moves people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son through the work of the Spirit. But we do have a role. The last P is to persevere. Well, I tried. They didn't listen. I'm moving on. Isn't that the way we work? When we run into something hard, we give up. Rather than persevere step by step. I I think I've told this story before. George Mueller in his little biography, Man of Prayer. This is back in the uh, 18th, 19th century. George Mueller had an orphanage and and he uh, wouldn't ask for money. What he would do, he would, he would pray. And, and as he was running in this orphanage, they had run out of milk. And sure enough, a milk a truck broke down right in front of the orphanage. And the guy came to the door and said, would you guys drink this milk? Because it's going to spoil because I can't get it uh, because my cart's broken down. And sure enough, bread, all these kinds of stories. But toward the back of the book, he had four friends that he was praying for for 40 years. One comes to Christ before George Mueller dies. Two become Christians at his funeral and one later. There's perseverance. Well, who, who makes disciples? Who, who's the one? Because he says, one of the things we teach is the Great Commission itself, the commandment. And so it's circular. Everybody that comes to Christ is to be involved in the Great Commission. And therefore, we all make disciples. Every Christian is a disciple-making disciple. All of us. We're helping each of us move to the right. That is, uh, uh, some people need to be engaged. uh, Some people uh, need to be evangelized. uh, Some people need to be established. And some people need to be equipped. You might find yourself somewhere on that scale. And what do you need to do is move to the right. That is, you're you're not a believer, but you've heard the gospel and you want to respond. That's great. Maybe, Maybe you've been established, but you've never been equipped to be involved in the Great Commission. That's what we're here for. We're all helping each other. No one person is responsible. Each of us have a role to play. Each of us do our part. But our desire is for everyone to become mature in Christ, established in the faith, and engaged in the mission. Finally, we're disciples made. Verse 19, 
Go and make disciples where? All nations. The word there for nations is ethnos. Every ethnic group. Every people's group. That means both inside and outside the church. Making disciples is at the center of all that we do as a church. And it happens in every corner of this present darkness. Just as we're, we're kind of wrapping up, I, I want to just explain our simple trellis here at EP, where we believe all of our members, all of our regular attenders ought to participate. One is what you're doing right now here in worship. I know the trend we've been watching has been moving from people coming to church every four out of four to three out of four. And I have a buddy, it's about 1.8 out of four. You could be the same church of a thousand and you have 500 simply because people went from three out of uh, four out of four to two out of four and you hadn't changed one thing. But we believe in worship. The songs we sing, the confessions we confess, the scriptures we read and the message we give is part of discipleship. It helps us grow. And that's why we connected our worship to our small groups. We call them renew groups where you have an opportunity to be cared for by others and to care for other people, but also to sharpen yourself and to sharpen others about the application of the word that we hear. And then lastly is mission itself, that we are grown here to go there, church for the world. I have a friend in Fairhope, Alabama, and he's an older gentleman, and, and it's his second career. He bought a pecan orchard. There are pecan orchards everywhere in Fairhope. And he bought a, a pecan orchard. It's called uh, B&B Pecans. His name's Clarence. And when he started, all he did was take pecans and shelled them and sold them in tins. And people bought them, but the, the advent of the internet when he created a website, people all over the world now order his pecans. And he diversified, as many people do in business. And so now you can get chocolate pecans. You can get all kinds of pecans. But where he makes his money, where he knows he has to excel, is in what? The shelled pecan. Because that's what everybody orders in addition to all the others. EP is a lot like that. A lot like B&B pecans. We do a lot of things here. We have a lot of ministries here that do a lot of good things. But we need to do these three things well because it's the trellis by which we're making disciples. Worship, our small group renew ministry, and then the mission itself as we mobilize and get you in to ministry. I, I love the ending of verse 20 because we could think that we could do this ourselves. Or we think that we've got all the talent here. Or maybe way on the other extreme, no way we can do this. You see how it ends? And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The maestro is playing while we're still doing our chopsticks. He's working through us in his mission until the work is done. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the mission of, our, of yours that you've invited our church to participate. And we've been working so hard 
uh, to develop here at EP over the last number of years. And we thank you for the progress you've allowed us to make and aligning uh, budgets and programs and ministries of our church. We thank you for the people that you have brought here that are engaged in the mission. We thank you for the leadership that you've provided our church. We thank you for so many things that you have done to to bring us to the point where we are ready to engage and to reaching out into our community to people who are still in the domain of darkness that need to come into the kingdom of the Son, where you have sent your Son to redeem and give forgiveness of sin. So help us enter in and remember that we are just simply moving people from one place they are uh, to the right. Help us do that, Father, as we think through over the next days, weeks, months, and years how to do it better uh, for your glory and not ours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.